Good morning. All right. This is punishment. I'm starting at 11.30. I did 45 minutes last time I spoke, so Brock is making sure that I don't go longer than 30 minutes this morning. So No, it's not really. It's great to be with you, and uh, I'm excited um, just to be able to share what um, I have this morning. We're back in our series. Well, not back. We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, and so you can open up your Bible. We're going to be in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. That's where we're beginning this morning. And uh, last week, if you were... If you were here, you would remember. So this is like the super fast recap of last week. And two things will happen here. One is this will spark your memory and jog what Brock actually said about the earlier part of chapter four. Or if you weren't here, hopefully it will provoke you enough with curiosity that you'll go and listen to the sermon online afterwards. So basically, in a nutshell, last week, basically Brock said from the early part of chapter four that we are trusted with the secret things of God. We're stewards of the mystery The greater the anointing, the bigger the towel. Do you want the power of God? And we all have access to God's Louvre. Yeah. So I was hoping that you'd kind of go, God's Louvre? Yeah, that was the the reference to the museum in Paris, the Louvre, um, and about the, the, the image of having access to treasures that are in there, but in terms of the kingdom of God. So there you go. That was last week. This week we are going to be in the last section of chapter four, Verses 14 to 21, and this has two distinct parts to it. So really, uh, the beginning bit is Paul is reminding the church of their primary identity, and the second, he begins to address a problem um, within their church community. And uh, <laughs> when you read the passage with me, if you, if you haven't read it recently or you're not familiar with it, you'll you realize there's a little bit of like intrepidation as you approach a passage like that because this is one of those infamous moments when Paul does not mince his words. So let's read it together and we can figure out how we're going to navigate our way through um, Paul's rather direct words to the church in Corinth. So verse 14, I'm writing this not to shame you but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Great, huh? So you'll be pleased to know that I haven't brought any aids with me this morning as I'm preaching the word. Uh, There's no rods uh, on my person this morning. But let's pray, shall we, just for a moment and uh, ask the Lord to help us as we go through this. Father, we thank you so much for this time. And we just acknowledge your presence, Jesus, here with us. We thank you that you're here. We thank you that uh, you want to speak to us. And I pray that you would open our hearts, Holy Spirit, and our minds to hear from you today. That you would build your church here, Jesus. We love you and we honor you, Lord. Amen. Well... The overarching aim of what Paul is trying to do here is that he's trying to convey to the church in Corinth that they are family to him. 
The primary identity of the body of Christ is family. We're sons and daughters, bought at a price into the family of God. We've been rescued from the power of sin and death by our Savior Jesus, and by receiving him into our hearts, we now have the Spirit of God inside of us. We have his DNA. We have, if you like, we're the spiritual bloodline of Yahweh. And Paul here is, he's not just establishing a healthy way to confront the church, but he's reminding them of who they are. He's reminding them of the nature of their relationship with him as a spiritual father. Paul's language is passionate, it's heartfelt. You know, there's deep concern that he carries in his heart for the church in Corinth. They're not a problem for the apostle to fix. They are his spiritual sons and daughters whom he reserves the highest aspirations for. And I want to illustrate this really quickly. And Joe Hill, you just caught my eye at the right time. And I see Katie is with you. Would you guys help me really quick with a visual? Would you come up? Okay. So I want to illustrate this. Let me just say this last um, sentence again. This is Joe and Katie Hill, by the way, if you've not met them before. Um, the, uh, the highest aspirations that parents have are reserved for their children. And if you, if you have children, you'll resonate with that. There's something in our hearts that is unique in the way that we think about our children. We, we just want the best for them. And we're actually prepared to do anything it takes to get the very best for our kids. And I want to illustrate this because uh, I think there's something that the Lord wants us to catch, not just about the significance of family, but actually about the significance of the church and how we're meant to function as a family. So, Katie, this requires a little bit of gymnastic skill. Are you up for that? Okay. So we can either go bold or we can go safe here, but what I want you to do is to be on your dad's shoulders. So you can either go with the, the just sitting on the shoulders, or if you're feeling the, the swimming pool kind of tendencies, you can go feet on, but I probably would suggest let's go for the sit on the shoulders. Um, so if you can maybe, I'm trusting Joe, you're in good health and you can, you can manage this. Okay, Katie, hold tight. And Joe, if you can stand up. Okay, so if you just stand there and look at these guys for a minute. I won't keep you there long, but hold that pose for a moment. So the dream is that for, that for parents, that our kids would go beyond us. The start we give would mean our ceiling is their floor. And so this, as we think about the church, is what I think it means to be family. And what Paul is actually getting at here in this whole passage is he's saying to, to the church, remember that your primary relationship to one another is as family. That you reserve your highest aspirations, you do the difficult things in order that Katie's floor is her dad's ceiling. So where Joe and Marie finish, Katie gets to start. That's her foundation. Thanks, guys. And if, if you notice that, as you notice, if you look at verses 14 and 15 with me, notice that what Paul moves directly into here is he, he's addressing the potential pitfall that may, the, the church in Corinth may experience. He's saying, look, my dear children, it, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. And then he goes on to talk about how he contrasts this language of guardian and father. And in the Greek culture of the day, that word, and forgive the pronunciation, is um, pedagogos, um, which has its links to ped uh, 
pedagogy. I can't even say that word. Is that right? Thank you. That works. So the idea of the, 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 this person in Greek society was an entrusted person, often a slave, but they would be um, involved in the children's life on behalf of the father. They would take them to school. They would provide some care for them. But significantly, they were not the father. They were a guardian. And so Paul, in this um, section, he's acknowledging the influence of other mentors in the life of the church there, um, people like Apollos and possibly Peter, but also he's alluding to um, some ringleaders that he later rebukes as you get into chapters five through seven. But he reminds them that he is their father in the gospel. So what does he mean when he's saying, you know, father in Christ? Well, Paul laid the foundation for this church. He helped establish this church in Corinth. So in one sense he is, he's reestablishing his apostolic authority to bring correction. In case you haven't caught this, that they're about to get a bit of a, a, a sorting out in the next few chapters, five through seven. You'll, there's this, these different things that are going on in the church that Paul is needing to address for their sake, for their safety, and to preserve them in a, as a healthy community. But what he's doing here is not just the uh, cliched dad speech now, I'm your father, do as I tell you. No, this is way more than that. This is, a call, this is a call to a higher understanding. Fathers and mothers trump mentors. They reflect the primary identity we've been given in Christ, which is family. Parents raise up sons and daughters. They bestow a unique value and dignity on them. And the nature of the love that parents have for kids is to be reflected in the church community. Paul is setting a standard here. He's, he's, he's creating a blueprint for how church is meant to be. So look at the words. Let's just look at the distinction here. He's saying not shame, but warn. So Paul is clear to distinguish that, the, that in the family of God, we don't deal with shame anymore. Why? Well, shame disempowers. It partners with accusation, which is from our enemy. It questions identity. Shame puts barriers up in relationships, ones that Jesus has already removed. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus scorned the shame by going to the cross. He dealt with our shame. He dealt with my shame. He dealt with your shame. We do not have to partner with shame anymore. That's good news, people. He not only paid for it, but he demonstrated he had defeated it. Do you ever find yourself, maybe unintentionally, partnering with shame or accusation in some way? Do you find that it, there are moments when you tolerate it? Or that it manifests itself even when you're talking with certain people? Sometimes as parents, we find ourselves um, this way with children, with our children, often realizing without realizing we're doing it. Maybe you experience this in your extended family or friends. It's commonplace in the world. I'm such an idiot. He's not the sharpest tool in the box. Phrases like this attack our identity and they disempower us. Shame attacks our identity when we make mistakes. You know, we, we have a negative experience. You're worthless. You can't get free of pornography. No one really likes you. You'll never amount to much. That, by the way, was a personal one <laughs> from my uh, first teacher in school told my mom, Michael's a bit of a daydreamer. He probably won't amount to very much. Can you believe that was said to my mom? It's terrible, isn't it? She didn't mean much by it, but she didn't understand what she was doing. 
That took some work in a Sozo session a few years ago, by the way, so <laughs> words can be powerful. But yet, in sharp contrast, a warning comes to our aid. A warning, it rescues us as it pulls us back from the brink and it says, hey, don't go there. That's going to cause you harm. You do it out of love when you see someone's in danger. I think about like what a child, when, uh, with, a, with a parent, again, I'm using this illustration, but if a parent sees a child wandering towards a busy street, they're not going to stand back and just watch that happen. They're going to go and warn them, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't step into the traffic. That would be bad. You know, Paul is using this analogy of family because he wants the church to feel his motivation. He wants them to feel his heart for them. I love you too much to stay silent. If I don't speak to you clearly, then I'm neglecting my responsibilities as a spiritual father. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's a very famous confrontation that takes place where Nathan the prophet comes before David and he says the hard thing. He confronts him about his behavior with Bathsheba, about an adulterous affair, how he conspired to have Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. And that, was, that took some courage to go to a king and say, you are out of order. But he did it. And as a result of it, David was repentant wholeheartedly. And God was able to restore him and his royal line. Confronting someone in love, warning them, provides the potential for supernatural restoration. What does confronting someone look like in your life? Is there a friend or someone you know here? A colleague, a family member, do you see them in a place of harm for themselves or others? Are they potentially blinded and not aware? Maybe God has allowed you to see something so that you can speak up. Being family means being willing to say the hard things and risk being rejected. In a galaxy far, far away, I once led a team, uh, not really in a galaxy, but to... Uh, recognize the sensitivity of telling this story, um, where I was faced with the knowledge that one of my team was using meth in her time off and getting into some hairy situations. She was good at her job. She was becoming really valuable as part of the team. Um, she was growing in leadership qualities. And having previously recovered from a drug habit, she was turning her life around. This was a setback and one that I could justifiably have to fire her for. I knew that in confronting her, a lot was riding on it. She could reject what I had to say. She could um, deny the accusations. I didn't have rock-solid proof. I, uh, I remember feeling just sick in my stomach um, when I got the information, and I knew that I had to act on it. I remember the, uh, the thought of, this is kind of precarious. I might get into some trouble here from a HR point of view because I can't prove this. But I knew I needed to talk to her. Um, so I had my Nathan moment with her. And thankfully, she in the moment, she just acknowledged it. She in the process admitted what had happened and that she'd relapsed. And although there were some consequences and some things to walk through um, in, in that place, there was, uh, but through accountability and support, she embraced what was asked of her and she was able to stay on the team. She went from strength to strength and over the next two years, she became an important leader. Without the confrontation, she was on a dangerous trajectory, not just within her work situation, but even with her family and relationships. Without confrontation, we risk people's destiny. 
letting them stay unaware in harm's way or living within themselves. We risk letting people stay where they are and not fully step into all they're meant to be in God. We don't usually have a lot of guarantees when we take the step out, like this is gonna work out perfectly, I just need to have the conversation, then heaven will come and glory will manifest in the room and people will become presidents and no, it doesn't always usually, in my experience, work like that. But when we risk in obedience to God and lead with love, we create a safe place for restoration to happen. Okay. Let's move on. Verses 16 and 17. Paul switches gear here and he calls them back to what it means to be part of the family. And he uses these words of imitation and um, he uh, sends Timothy to them to represent him to the church in Corinth. 16 and 17 read, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I've sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love. Again, notice the language he's using. Who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is bold language. But yet, it's not unusual for Paul. Six times in the New Testament, Paul uses basically the same phrase. There's a couple that I've given as reference. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3, 17, he says, uh, what does he say? Brothers, join join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The role of imitation is powerful is a powerful practice in learning how to follow Jesus. Paul is referring to um, the, uh, the example of not judging himself and, and not taking pride in human leaders, which he talks about in the earlier part of chapter four. Um, and he's also talking about his willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ, which is in the uh, verses eight through 13 of chapter four. But really, this is about his whole life. This is about him saying, look at my whole life. And as we think about Paul's life, we think about what he lived and how he modeled a life of following Christ to, to the church and to those around him. He was a man who, who consistently looked for God's power over persuasive words. He, was, he chose weakness and foolishness in the eyes of the world in order to see the wisdom of God. There was a vulnerability that he embraced that drew the supernatural power of God to him. There was courage to go wherever the Holy Spirit led him. See, who we are and how we live matters. Who you are and how you live matters. More than what we teach, more than what we say, and more than what we do. What does your life look like? What are those closest to you? Observe about how you're living. Where is God at work in you that is yielding the kind of fruit worth imitating? I wrote the questions and I was kind of intimidated by my own questions. <laughs> Just to be honest with you, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to say that, but I'm going to say it, and I have said it, so too late, it's already said. But you know, they're, they're, they're provoking to us when we think about them. Sometimes, you know, when in a Sunday morning experience, you know, the person talking, they do various different things. They read scriptures, they tell stories, they make points, they ask questions, and then it just kind of flows. But I want you to just pause on the question for a moment. Don't miss a moment here where maybe the Lord wants to highlight something. 
It's sobering to reflect on what others might notice about how we live and when we consider the question of fruit in our lives worth imitating, that will get any false humility right out into the open. Here's what I want you to do for a moment. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a fruitful person. Okay, you can do this now. You don't have to do it now, or you can maybe just think about doing this. I want, you to think, I want you to write down something positive that God is doing in your life and how that might be visible to people around you. I want you to write down something positive that God is doing in your life and how that might be visible to people around you. Rather than diminish this, consider how you might partner with God to see this increase. I want to make a quick plug. Very, this is a little bit of a jump, but this book here changed my life about 15 years ago. It's called Now Discover Your Strengths. It's not a Christian book that I'm aware of, or not overtly. But this book, um, the premise of this book is that the greatest room for growth exists within our greatest strengths. They did a bunch of research, talked to very successful people in business and leadership around the world, and Gallup did all of the surveying. And what they found was consistently the people who were most successful invested more time developing their strengths rather than trying to compensate and grow their weaker areas. Romans 12, 6 to 7, essentially is saying the same thing. Paul is talking about our gifts and your abilities to prophesy, to teach, to encourage, to serve, to be generous, to spend time, to serve needs. And he's saying, according to your faith in the grace that is given. He's essentially saying, use what you've got to all your might and keep doing it. That is my encouragement to us. When you think about where God is at work, celebrate it, dig into it, ask him for more, let him multiply it. I'm not saying bury your head in the sand with your weaknesses and your sin. This is not the point here. But do you see what I'm saying? There's often the greatest room for growth and fruitfulness in the areas where God is already at work with you. Next, Paul sends Timothy. Paul is sending Timothy. He will represent Paul to the church. And the language is saying it's like as if Paul was literally there, this is how they're experiencing Timothy. Paul was a father to Timothy. He says, my son whom I love. This suggests that Paul prizes the relationship over the gifting. And it's because trust is the commodity of God's kingdom. You see, Paul trusts Timothy to represent him, to act as Paul would act, and with the knowledge that he would build in the same manner that Paul would. This is powerful. When you train and equip someone to the point where they don't just go to get the job done, but they actually do it in a way that represents you, this is a powerful thing. Timothy is not diminished in this task as if some kind of weak yes man who is just acting on Paul's behalf. This was part of his preparation. Paul was training him to do the work of the apostle. And you can see that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This example in Timothy reveals a significant foundation for all Christians, regardless of time or place. As followers of Jesus, we're first to learn how to represent him, represent his kingdom, represent his church, represent his leadership. You know, church, I want to encourage you, let's develop integrity. Let's, let's develop integrity in learning how to follow Jesus, to do the things that he did, to remember the things that he said to do and to practice doing them. 
Learn his ways with the Father. Do what the Father is doing. Mike Pilovacci, who is a British guy, um, he is uh, now kind of in his latter years, in his early 70s, I believe, but was hugely influential in affecting youth in the UK. He uh, led a movement called Soul Survivor, and year after year, thousands of teenagers would discover faith in Jesus through this movement, who would get on fire, they'd get equipped and get empowered to live passionate lives for Jesus. And Mike Pilovacci once, once talked about how Obedience is the love language of God. And he was contrasting, you know, the love languages book that's well known. And he was talking about how actually with God, obedience is his love language. In John 15, 10, Jesus says essentially the same thing. But why is obedience significant? Well, obedience reveals trust. It requires intimacy and it exercises faith. You know, there are lots of stories in this room, I'm sure, and I know some of them, um, of people who have um, had those journeys with God where he's spoken something to you and he's asked you to obey and he's asked you to go and do something. Um, And I'd kind of like to share one of those stories, but because I only know the details of my own story, I'm going to tell you very quickly about something that God did with me and my family. Um, In 2008, God spoke to us out of the blue. We were looking at church planting in the UK. We were living in the UK at the time. But one morning as I prayed, I heard him say, sell your house and everything in it, and in two years you'll be at Bridgeway. This was not plan A for us. (laughs) And even though Jennifer grew up in Oklahoma, um, she loved England and she loved the community that we had there. And we felt clearly like this was a place that God was using us and we had passion to be there. Hearing God required a level of intimacy. Um, Moving countries and selling our house and everything in it required trust and obedience. But you know, as we did that, God provided a home. He provided a job. He provided furniture for our home. He provided in many different ways that we saw. And after four months, we found ourselves here with Rock and Bev, helping them and joining in with this community. And it's been incredible. It's been been an amazing gift, and it's been sweet to watch how God has revealed his plan for us and the reasons why he brought us here. And we feel incredibly grateful that we are here. But here's my point. God wants to lead you in ways where you hear his voice, where you step out in obedience, trusting him, and then see how your faith comes alive as a result. All right, I need to land this thing here. Let's do this. Do you guys stand up with me? If you're on the ministry team, uh, I want us to, I didn't want to get hit 12 o'clock and not have time to respond. But as a way of um, just pulling this together, I guess what I'm wanting us to get hold of this morning as a church is that God has called us to be a family together. He's called us to do the brave things in that not just um, being kind to one another and saying nice things, but he's called us to live in communities where we call the very best out of one another. And it's in that place that we, we fully realize all that God has for us. 
And even just as we prepared this morning, the intercession group were saying, here's some things that we were sensing for the morning. And so I want to give a space to respond to that specifically, but I also want to say if, if there's anything that you want prayer for this morning, anything that God is stirring in you, um, anything that you want someone to come alongside with you about to pray, we'd love to do that and invite you to come. But here's what I want us to do, if this is okay. Um, the intercession guys were talking about how they, we felt it was important to pray for the, um, the middle school and high school. So I want to say to you, if you're in middle school or high school right now, if you're willing, would you come down here to my left, to your right, and just don't wait while I stop talking, just come. Um, if you're in here and you're not quite middle school, but you kind of feel like maybe you might be, then just come as well. So that's permission to those of you who are fifth grade um, to come as well and just get in on this. Al's word about evangelism that he shared, I think, is significant for you guys. And I think uh, there's a dream as well. It's interesting. Ariella had a dream last night. And she, in the dream, she, uh, she basically saw us with nets. And some of our nets had holes in them. And she felt like this morning was significant and that God wanted to mend some of the holes. And I think that the dream, part of what it represents actually is about learning who we are as a family, but it's also about how we receive people into God's family as well. So here's what I want to invite you to do. Um, if you want to come down and join with the ministry team and gather around and pray for these guys, come now. If you're welcome to come and we'll just kind of facilitate some prayer for them. I'm going to start, I'm just going to pray something um, and then I'll turn it to Brock if that's all right. So, when I said if you want to come, that was kind of a polite British way of saying, get down here and help me pray. Um, so uh, if you're willing, come down and, and gather around these, these folks. They're just, they've, they're just into uh, a new year, a new academic year. And uh, there's a sense that God is doing something new with our youth. They're, they're launching Youth Alphas beginning next week. Um, they're going to be, they have been inviting friends, and I keep hearing stories of many, many friends being invited to come. So it's entirely possible that a whole bunch of people who've never been in this building will be here next week, checking out Alpha, exploring Christianity, seeking out Jesus. So let's pray for them. There's How To Life that's launching in three places as well, again, with vision to reach their school campuses. So let's pray for these guys and that they would know God's strengthening them. Let's do that, shall we? Jesus, we love you and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come right now. Thank you that you want to mend our nets, Lord, that you want to bring us into places where we are able to hold on to all that you give us. And I pray that not just for the youth, but for all of us, that we would be a community that embraces your mending of our nets that we would receive all that comes from heaven. And we pray especially for these young people, Lord, that you would fill them with your spirit this morning, that they would know the love of their Father in heaven who sings over them with joy, who delights in them, who has plans that you, that you have written plans out, Lord, that before they were even born, you knew what was in their destiny. And so we just call it out this morning. We bless them to walk in that. Say, so give them favor to reach their friends at school. Give them favor as they study and as they work and as they grow as young people into adults. Lord, give them all that they need this morning. In Jesus' name we ask.